bulking and cutting, an examination of bulking and cutting behaviors among a population of adolescent and young adult Canadian individuals. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, let's get started with our first question, which would be a pretty basic one. Dr. Ganson, for our viewers who probably aren't as familiar with your specific research, could you give a brief overview of the study? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for covering this topic and being interested in it. Yeah, this is a study that comes from some a large data uh, data set that I collected last year. So in 2022, uh, called the Canadian Study of Adolescent Health Behaviors. It's a large sample of about 2,700 Canadian adolescents from the ages of 16 to 30 years old. And they represent all Participants represent all 13 provinces and territories in Canada. So it's quite a diverse sample, bans uh, the whole entire country. Um, and it obviously kind of captures a lot of focus of it is a lot of sort of body image, eating disorder, uh, muscle building behaviors, other sort of adolescent and young adult health, health behaviors, risk behaviors like substance use and any sort of engagement in violence, things of that nature. So it's quite a large survey. Um, and captures kind of a contemporary engagement on these different behaviors. So that's like the large foundation of the study. And a, a major focus of a vast majority of the questions are focused on, you know, newer sort of eating and body-based phenomenon like uh, bulking and cutting. We've also done studies on intermittent fasting and cheat meals, um, working on a study now on elimination dieting. Um, so really looking at some things that are like we talk about in society on social media that aren't really being researched heavily in uh, in empirical you know research and data or being captured in that type of setting. So that's that's sort of the foundation of the work. Um, and so what we did for this specific study was we we asked a number of questions about bulking and cutting specifically. Um, and so we tried to capture uh, you know not only like you know prevalence within the study, like kind of prevalence within the sample of people who responded to the survey, but also tried to characterize whether or not people who engaged in bulking and cutting were more likely to experience um, eating disorder behaviors and symptomology, um, as well as like a higher drive for muscularity, as well as muscle dysmorphia symptoms too. Um, and so that was kind of the you know, main foundation of the analysis and what we looked at. Yeah, about the questions asked in the survey, were participants asked about the relationship with physical activity or recreational weightlifting? Yeah, so we did ask a number of questions about actually uh, lots of different items around physical activity. Yeah, we, we sort of had a list of probably 25 different types of activities that people could engage in. Things like, you know, weight training, all the way to things like playing hockey or basketball or baseball or, you know, running, cross-country training, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was quite extensive, the physical activity question. For this specific study, we didn't actually analyze any of that data. We didn't, we didn't include it in the analysis in any capacity, but, um, but yes, the participants were asked about physical activity. Why do you think that in information is necessary to gather from each participant? Uh, I mean, certainly uh, people who are engaging in bulking and cutting are likely engaging in it for a specific purpose. Uh, and again, the, for the sort of purpose and benefit of bulking and cutting is, you know, of course, trying to sort of increase muscle mass while at the same time then cutting and reducing, you know, body fat. Um, so certainly, you know, people who are engaging in weight training, not all of them, of course, are engaging in bulking cutting, but people who are engaging in weight training often are trying to gain muscle, which requires some caloric surplus to actually have those strength and, you know, physical gains. So yeah, it's definitely an important component to the sample here. For most people, bulking and cutting is the practice of first engaging in a say, caloric surplus for a elongated period of time such that you will have excess energy and protein available to create muscle, followed by a period where you have a calorie deficit, which leads to the loss of that additional fat that is gained during the period. Um, and generally that's done for weight trainers 
to gain that extra muscle mass. But it seemed like in this study, you were looking at bulking and cutting in a more nuanced, from a more nuanced perspective and less focused on strictly bodybuilders. Yeah, that's correct. This is not a, this is not a sample that's specifically bodybuilders or people who are even physically active. There are people in the sample who responded, didn't respond to any of the physical activity. You know, they, they denied physical activity in some capacity. So, you know, while the sample, the sample is people who could be engaging in like you know, competitive bodybuilding or even like, you know, intermediate sort of weight training and trying to gain muscle mass. We were not particularly interested in whether or not someone who is a bodybuilder, you know, is more likely to, you know, bulk and cut, which is then more likely to lead to some sort of outcome or be associated with some sort of outcome. Uh, we were instead just looking at is, is any engagement in bulking and cutting across the sample? Is it related to eating disorders, diet for muscularity, and uh, you know muscle dysmorphia? We were we were curious about everybody and not so much just a specific subsect of people. And from your results, would you say that bulking and cutting are behaviors evident of body dysmorphic disorders? Um, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, so we looked at muscle dysmorphia, which is a subtype or a specifier of body dysmorphic disorder. So. Um, we didn't have, we don't have diagnostic, uh, well, there's actually not really good diagnostic, um, you know, scales for muscle dysmorphia, let's say there's, there's scores around symptomology, which is what we use, which is the muscle dysmorphic disorder inventory, inventory. And so from the data that we have, um, we did find that people who engaged in any type of bulking cutting over the last 12 months were more likely to engage, have higher levels of muscle dysmorphia symptoms. Um, and so again, that could be like appearance intolerance symptoms. So like, you know, having uh, negative thoughts about one's muscle size, or it could be like functional impairment where someone is, you know, skipping out on social activities to engage in weight training or some sort of training. And so that we found that for, for men in the sample, for women in the sample, um, as well as for transgender people and gender non-performing people in the sample. So kind of going back to your question before about the sort of importance of physical training, um, you know, it's, it's very likely that people who are engaging in bulking and cutting are engaging in behaviors such as weight training in order to increase muscle mass and tone because the average person who like is just living life and not trying to probably gain muscle mass um is probably not gaining it you know working on a bulking cut cycle they're just eating right um and so yeah because of the purpose of uh bulking cutting um it makes sense that people in the sample would have higher scores of muscle dysmorphia um, and same thing with the drive for muscularity, you know, we found that across the sample as well. Because again, like I think underpinning the behavior is a certain level of drive for muscularity. So it's, it sort of makes sense that that's there. You know, the problem I think lies in the sense that the higher, like higher scores on muscle dysmorphia indicates greater symptomology, right? Or higher scores on drive for muscularity indicates greater, greater severity of like drive. And so that can of course lead to other problematic behaviors which we know like things like steroid use or, you know, excessive exercising or other sort of risk behaviors that people engage in. So we didn't look at that specifically in this study, but we know from other literature um, that it's possible that people can be engaging in other higher risk behaviors and problematic behaviors for themselves. Yeah. So it seems these cycles stem from dissatisfaction with body image, but do they have any positive effect on self-image? Like, is there a way to bulk slash cut in a healthy manner? <laughs> That's uh, that's a very good question. I've gotten that question before. Um, I would think that there's certainly, um, I'm of the mindset of like, you know, you have to be careful with dieting and any type of diet, right? Because we know that first of all, dieting and cycling through dieting is not necessarily good for your body. It can be, can cause some problems. It can cause metabolic problems, psychological problems, of course. 
So I'm, I'm certainly on the camp of like, you know, you should really be careful with any type of diet and like eat things in moderation and eat things you like and all that kind of stuff. Uh, exercise in a way that feels good to your body. And I will say that I think that for people who are trying to gain weight, muscle building exercise or weight training or whatever it might be, um, as I said earlier, you know, there's a certain level of sort of increase or caloric surplus you have to have in order to not only gain muscle, but maintain their muscle gain. So I think there's probably ways to do it if you're doing it, uh, you know, certainly under the you know advice of maybe a medical professional or a dietitian or a specific trainer that someone you can trust um, specifically who's maybe not going to push you out of your own comfort zone. Um, but I do think it's something you need to be careful with because I think it can go down a path very quickly of this isn't enough, but I haven't changed my body to where I really want it to be. Or there might be outside pressures from, you know, trainers or people in the gym or uh, media that are sort of, again, further emphasize or coaches are further emphasizing your body needs to be different and here's the ways you need to do it versus kind of listening to your body following what feels good to you as a person and your values and engaging in the like exercise and activity in a way that feels meaningful versus kind of for another purpose. So you'd say just maybe it's det- detrimental to your body in general. So like we often see bulking and cutting in combat sports. And mm-hmm. of course this is, I'd assume medically advised, but you would still consider those actions as unhealthy. I, I don't think I would use a strong word as unhealthy. I would sort of say more that I think it's just something for the average person to probably be more cautious of. Yeah. Um, again, uh, you know, pro athletes have tons of people who are around them who are, you know, cooking their food or, you know, like helping them train or whatever it might be. Right. And maybe for even providing mental health support, you know, so, uh, but the average person doesn't have that. They are like kind of going to the internet. It's like, Googling, how do I do this or how do I do this or whatever it might be. So um, it could be potentially dangerous or, it, you know, to use the term unhealthy um, for those people. And again, I think this kind of comes a little bit out in the data that we have here, um, you know, specifically around like eating disorder, psychopathology and symptoms um, and behaviors like, you know, uh, across the sample minus the transgender people with the you know men and women in the sample, you know, they did have greater eating disorder behaviors. So that includes things like know, vomiting or like excessive exercise or fasting, um, as well as just eating disorder sort of thoughts, like negative thoughts about one's body, um, sort of obsessiveness about one's body. So, and we know those can be quite problematic as well. So, you know, and this, and as I said earlier, this sample is more like a general population type sample. It's kind of, it's just people who responded to the survey versus, you know, professional athletes or even, even like, um, you know, um, you know, like kind of intermediate athletes or something like aspiring pro athletes. Like, you know, they don't, they presumably don't have the same resources as like a professional athlete. Yeah, true. I wanted to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned uh, media pressures. Would you say that because of factors like media and just the more widespread ability of the, I guess, the physical ideal that younger generations are more susceptible to be involved in bulking and cutting patterns? I, yes, I think, um, while this is not certainly part of this, my study here, um, I mean, I think generally, yes, I think that the, there's a strong emphasis on, uh, especially for young males, young boys and men, um, and of course young women too, but I think there's a very strong emphasis on like the muscular ideal for for boys and men. Um, and even for women, there's like more, the emphasis is blessed a little bit on, um, thin ideal and it's moving more towards the tone or like fit kind of ideal um, or athletic ideal. Um, and so, yeah, I think like, you know, Instagram, um, you know, certainly other social media feeds and pages kind of 
perpetuate the ideal body image, um, even things like showing people in the gym. I often talk in like presentations and I talk about the male body image. I talk about like, you know, the rock who's like second or third most followed person on Instagram. And like most of his videos are like of him working out or like the food he eats or like, you know, his body in some capacity. It's hard to escape those, those images and that sort of constant narrative, which of course then feed some of the satisfaction or, you know, drive for, you know, achieving that type of ideal. And then of course that can lead to how do I do that? Right. How do Google, how do I get the rocks body or how do I, you know, make myself look more attractive or more muscular? Um, and that if you search that, I would be willing to bet in like men's health magazine or like men's health website, or I don't know, like bodybuilding.com. Like there's going to be many, many articles about bulking and cutting, um, and then sort of how to how to engage in that and what the process looks like. So yeah, well, I don't, again, I don't have like empirical data to say that that's the exact linear, like linkage that happens. Um, that's my hypothesis. And I think, uh, probably does bear out in, in data if we were to collect it. So moving back towards more towards the study, I thought it was interesting <laughs> that you chose to focus not only in, on men and women, but also involve transgender individuals into that, um, into your subject base. Why was that decision made? I think that when this research is done, it often focuses either on men or on women. And maybe mm -hmm. there's a few articles that integrate both together. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, certainly we need to be collecting data on all people, right? Despite gender identity. And so, uh, and we know in the data from previous data that people who identify as gender non-binary or transgender, um, you know, have, you know, greater body dissatisfaction or body dysmorphia or um, eating disorder behaviors, things of that nature. Um, so it's important to be collecting data on those people and really understanding what's happening for them just as much as it is for, you know, cisgender people. And I think that was sort of a partial aim of the study. Uh, the, the larger study that I, the, the data that I collected was to sort of capture an, a fair amount of people who are not just men and women who are, you know, transgender or gender non-conforming in some capacity. So yeah, so just trying to understand what's how does this how does this impact or how is it happening among this these this group of individuals? Um, it feels very relevant and very important, of course. And the study shows that transgender, gender nonconforming, and female participants completed bulk and cut cycles at a greater rate than male identifying, or sorry, at a um at a greater uh, in greater numbers, more consistent. <laughs> whereas right. men tended to um, overall engage at a greater percentage of the population in bulking and cutting behaviors. Would you say yeah. that that trend is evident of some motive behind the cycles, for, uh, some other motive besides muscularity for the female and transgender subject? Yeah, and I think it's a great question. Um, yeah, so so yeah, so what we did is we took that, we asked people whether or not they engaged in any, any time. Like, did you ever over the last 12 months engage in bulking and cutting? And so what we found is that men were more likely to say, yes, I have done this. However, as a follow-up question, we asked people how, like how many times did they engage in like a full cycle? And so we classified a full cycle as like a period of bulking and, and the period of, um, of cutting. And so what we found was, uh, sort of surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, that men engaged in, in more overall prevalence within the sample of bulking and cutting. But when we asked about like number of times or number of cycles, um, the transgender people had the highest number of times in the past 12 months, which was roughly like 15 or so. Um, whereas the women had about 12 and then men only had about three. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's a really good, and we hypothesize a bit about why this is in the study itself. And our sort of hypothesis is that if you, if you do read some of those like articles about body on bodybuilding.com or like online, like 
you'll hear and you'll see that, uh, you know, like a traditional timing around bulking cutting is like, you do like a couple of months of, of bulking and then a couple of months of cutting. And so you really only can do that two to three, maybe four times a year. And so I think the men are probably engaging in the behavior in more of a like kind of designed way, which is similar to what like you would read online or what you'd expect it to be. Whereas the women and transgender people we hypothesize are actually maybe engaging in it more of as a, a sort of a dieting process. So, you know, one might engage in like a diet for a few weeks or a month and then restrict or sort of try to kind of, you know, um, or I'm sorry, it's sort of opposite of that. They, they don't engage in a diet. They maybe have some free eating and then they restrict and that's sort of the cutting phase where they actually realize, oh, I might not want to, you know, gain any more weight or I have gained weight and now I need to sort of cut um, and sort of, you know, reduce my caloric intake in order to lose that weight again. So I, I we, we sort of think of it more as a um, sort, of, sort of a cyclical dieting process for women less and transgender people, less so a full on like bulk and cut process, um, which again, I think the men are probably, and again, we don't, we don't ask the questions qualitatively about like why people are engaging in so we don't actually know we kind of hypothesize that that might be what's happening there is is just a different purpose um above why um, and that's again something we can look at in future research hopefully so would you liken that to more of a elongated binge purge cycle possibly yeah it could be like a binge purge cycle i mean i don't know if it would be classified like full-on binge but i think maybe more just like free eating and sort of not worrying so much about what one is eating again in conjunction probably with some kind of like exercise or, or sort of purpose to gain weight or sort of you know be more flexible with food and then yeah probably a, a sort of reverting back to a restrictive dieting or um you know kind of caloric cutting calories in order to sort of lose any type of weight gained um or you know just kind of maintain in some capacity i'm about the demographic survey was there a purpose for making the age scope around 16 to 30? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes. Um, so uh, certainly, you know, uh, well, I'm, first of all, I my most of my research is focused on adolescents and young adults. So I kind of am particularly interested in that age group for many reasons. One, uh, you know, we know that body dissatisfaction often sort of peaks in this time frame. Uh, you know, this is a prime time of like puberty and sort of, um, you know, physical development, social development, psychological development. The onset of eating disorders, muscle dysmorphia, and many, many other mental health issues um, range from the ages of like 18 to, you know, 25 or something like that. You know, most most of the times around like 18, 19, 20. And that's kind of the highest incident of disorder eating, eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and similarly, uh, you know, like the other questions that were asked in the survey, um, you know, other like high risk substance use type behaviors, um, you know, again, like kind of peak in this time frame. Um, and are kind of, you know, and again, like we know that adolescents and young adults are very influenced by like their social environment. Um, you know, social media is a big part of this, obviously. And then I think lastly, you know, because I am interested in like health and health behaviors, we kind of know that at this time frame, especially in like, younger adolescents, or I mean, like adolescents to young adulthood, that sort of, you know, 18 to 25 range, that's kind of when the, like codification or like solidifying of health behaviors occurs. And so, you know, it does kind of set people up for future health behaviors that if they're, you know, smoking or drinking or engaging in a lot of risk behaviors or maybe even engaging in like bulking cutting, although we don't have this data yet, um, you know, maybe they're more likely to do things later on in their life that might be similarly risky or they might have more health problems or whatever it might be. So, um, 
Yeah, the age range is very purposeful uh, because this this age range is very like, I mean, I hate the term high risk, but it's kind of like a quote unquote high risk time frame for, uh, you know, all types of things. Yeah. You mentioned social media. Do you think this generation has participated in bulking and cutting more frequently than the last generation's adolescents? I would say yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, main, uh, mainly, well, and I also think the internet is also like perpetuated that, right? And like influencers. I mean, I did a qual- like an interview study with a bunch of people and like every single one of them talked to me about influencers that they would follow and get ideas from. And like, just I think the sharing of information about how to manipulate one's body is just massive. Like, yeah. you know, even back in the day when like Arnold Schwarzenegger was like Mr. Olympia and all that stuff, like, you know, I think a lot of these behaviors were confined to that, you know, bodybuilding community. And I don't think most people were, you know, like recreationally, like engaging in bulking and cutting. I think they were eating the food they had because that was what they had, you know? Um, so yeah, it's definitely made a huge difference. And that's the internet age in general, I think. You talked about sort of 18 to 20 being around the age when these sort of health patterns manifest and they become foundational for the rest of your, a person's life. Would you say that that means that sort of the 12 to 16 age frame is when we need to be targeting um, people of all gender identities with these healthy eating patterns so that they don't develop these cycles later in their lives? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, Yeah. So we, we also, yeah, so we didn't ask any, we have this, the survey was limited to people who are 16 and older. So yeah, we don't know from my sample, obviously, and these questions, we don't know about people younger than that, of course. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think if you're starting to intervene at 16, when we know some of these things based again, like on this study, for example, is are happening, um, you probably are like a little bit too late to preventing it. Right. I mean, certainly you can prevent like new people from starting. Right. But yeah, I I think having conversations, prevention and sort of health classes in, in school, let's say, or, um, having coaches and trainers being more involved in educating young people about. Uh, again, like, I don't love the term healthy, but like healthy eating, right? Like how to make positive choices or choices that are sort of more meaningful around food and exercise and diet. Um, you know, those are things that I think if we can provide that education, we can obviously, uh, you know, help people in some significant ways and prevent hopefully engagement in some of these more potentially risky behaviors or, um, harmful behaviors. And obviously research into this area is well expanding is relatively limited would you say that you've seen a in your career a general um pivot towards the these kinds of focuses these positive practices Mm -hmm. for eating and health yeah i would say for sure um i think that there has been over the last i don't know 15 20 years more emphasis especially in the last maybe several years um more emphasis on understanding like these quote-unquote like muscularity oriented behaviors um, where predominantly most of the research like for the last, I don't know, however many years, like 30 plus years, 50 years, has been focused on like fitness oriented disordered eating. And so again, that would be like things like restrict caloric restriction or dietary restraint or, um, you know, uh, like excessive exercise to lose weight or laxative use or vomiting. Um, and now we're pivoting and we're seeing that. I mean, I'm, I'm also like in the world of this. So like I'm constantly sort of looking at seeking for it seeking it out, but I do see a lot of research on, you know, different muscularity oriented behaviors, you know, muscle dysmorphia in the population, um, you know, body, di- I'm sorry, muscle dissatisfaction, 
uh, causes of that, um, appearance and performance enhancing drugs, studies on that. So yeah, I think I think there is a strong pivot that is happening, or maybe just an expansion of, maybe not a pivot, expansion of what we would study um, as potentially like problematic behaviors around body image and eating and um, things of that nature. So um, yes, I do think it's, it's, um, it's expanding, which is very good. Yeah, so I have a question that's kind of off topic of this conversation, but would you consider yeah. clean bulking an alternative to general bulking, or is that still a dramatic diet? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, again, I think you have to you have to think about purpose of why you're doing it. Uh, you have to think about kind of is, is there going to be like a drastic cut that happens afterwards? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not here to necessarily recommend one way or the other whether people should or shouldn't engage in it. Um, I'm here to sort of talk about the potential, potentially harms of it based on the, some of the studies, the study that I did. Um, and again, as we just said, like there's very limited data. So I think this is maybe one of, if not the only study that's really looked at like bulking and cutting as it relates to eating disorders and also dysmorphia diaphragmuscularity. So yeah, it's hard. We can't really, maybe we probably shouldn't right now say it's good, good or bad, right? Because we just don't have enough data. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, as I said to you earlier, like I think my initial stance on some of these things would always be approach with caution. Um, and, you know, like take, take, you know, website, you know, advice from the internet with, with a grain of salt, con consult with, you know, dietitians or medical professionals to sort of talk about desires around, Hey, I want to gain some muscle and I know it's going to help me in my sport and, uh, you know, how can I do that in a way that's safe? How can I do that in a way that's not going to necessarily lead to like, you know, body image issues or a desire to continue and push the limits even more or kind of go past that genetic potential. I think just consulting with people who you can trust is probably the first best step. And then, you know, ultimately deciding what to do from there is probably the next, the, the next best step. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not sure whether, you know, dirty or clean bulking is right or wrong, period. Yeah, you said there's limited information about this subject. Do you have a future project or study within the subject of bulking and cutting? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yes, yeah, so with the study that I did, the Canadian study on adolescent health behaviors, um, we actually just collected um, like year two data. So had about 2,700 people who responded to the first survey. Of those 2,700, about 2,200 said they would be willing to take a follow-up survey at 12 months. Um, and of the 2,200 that we invited back, about 1,000 of them participated in the study. So um, what that means is we have, a, we have a pretty good sample of people who followed up. Um, and so we do hope to do some studies looking at, um, you know, some of these behaviors as it relates to different outcomes. So and particularly, we asked questions at this most recent year two round on like health behaviors. So like, do you have a primary care provider? Have you seen your primary care provider in the last 12 months? Did you have any like health issues in the last 12 months? But yeah, I mean, we did ask a whole bunch of other health sort of health related behaviors. So what we hope to do in that study is look at, okay, well, does something like bulking and cutting lead to more emergency room visits or does that lead someone to have more sort of like doctor, primary care doctor visits for specific purposes um, or avoid the doctor for some particular reason? Um, so yeah, we do have some studies sort of lined up to look at this in a more longitudinal way um, as it relates to other health problems. Um, and again, we can also look at it as it relates to some of the same things we talked about. And I mean, we covered in the first survey, which is like, you know, if you engage in bulking and cutting at time one, are you more likely to have a higher eating disorder score or muscle dysmorphia score at time two? 
you know, so we can actually look at even the same sort of study, but look at it as a, in a longitudinal way, whereas sort of one predicts the other over a 12 month period, uh, which I think it would be very meaningful as well, because it would say, it would tell us that like a new onset of someone engaging in bulky cutting leads to over time, potentially problematic sort of eating disorder or drive for muscularity or muscle dysmorphia uh, pathology. On our previous podcast, we talked about muscle dysmorphia. I was wondering if you know, if because it seems like there's a limited medical expertise and advice on bulking and cutting, I assume. And I phrase this, are prof- medical professionals able to, I don't know, steer people away from the bulking and cutting cycles? <laughs> That's a good question. I always follow it. Yeah, I would probably assume that like medical professionals don't have a lot of knowledge on this. Um, that's my assumption. No, no, that's true. Uh, but I would say, yeah, they probably have a lack of knowledge, number one. Um, and number two, I, my sense would be that most or many medical professionals might be wary of efforts for young people in particular to like gain weight, you know, especially because there's lots of emphasis on making sure that there's like, you know, people in like not exceeding certain BMIs. And again, that's a whole other conversation for another day, but um, and sort of like quote, quote unquote, like obesity epidemic and all that jazz. So I think that most medical professionals would A, not have a lot of information on it and B, be wary or, or sort of like, you know, concerned about a young person's desire to gain weight, despite the fact that we know that like many adolescents and I've done research on this and some of my colleagues have done research on this, showing that like lots and lots and lots of young people, particularly boys are actually trying to gain weight. Like that is a purpose and a uh, behavior they're, they're engaging in. And obviously, like it's likely in this the form of muscle. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't think they have the knowledge or capacity probably yet to be able to recognize this or provide some sort of medical guidance. And still, I think it would be important for a young person or a person who's engaged interested in engaging in this to still have conversations with a doctor about it um, and 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 other professionals too, like a dietitian or um, you know a trainer or something along those lines. Yeah, I think that fact is sort of related to what you said earlier about how this study on bulking and cutting is probably rare amongst the general knowledge about muscle dysmorphia as that conversation tends to focus on what most people would consider more pressing issues like steroid use and supplements like SARMs, creatine, testosterone, all of these new supplements and drugs that are popping up and becoming more widely known and widely available with the internet and with social media. But this eating component is fundamental to weightlifting and is perhaps far more widespread than any of those drugs or supplements. Yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly steroid use, use of SARM, progesterone and all that jazz, like we, you know, we know a lot about steroid use, about the harms of that, of course. Um, we don't know as much about like long-term harm, like harm harms, biological, psychological, social around, you know, creatine use, despite that being quite common, especially even like whey protein. But we do know those substances, you know, can be contaminated and have been shown to be contaminated. We know that they can be mislabeled. We know that they can, they can lead to some adverse health outcomes like emergency room visits or disability. It's definitely not as quote unquote scary, right? Because we don't have the data about bulk mean cutting and long-term effects. But I agree with you that it's much more common um, and likely could be just as problematic uh, for many people. And I think, Jonas, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, which is to raise awareness about these conversations that aren't as popular. Yeah, I agree. Good. <laughs> you should be. That's awesome. <laughs> um, 
We have one last question. It doesn't really fit in the conversation right now, but I could ask it. Um, did participants who bulk before cutting achieve their desired result? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't. We don't know that. We didn't actually collect that level of data as far as like, did it work right? Like, did it actually you know do what they wanted it to do? Um, yeah, we didn't. We just don't have that data because you would need some kind of like time oriented data to assess like for example maybe like bmi or body dissatisfaction or body dissatisfaction before bulking and then maybe bmi or weight or whatever and dissatisfaction or satisfaction after and that we just don't we didn't have this is cross-sectional so it's just like one point in time um so yeah we don't actually have that data but that's i mean that's a great question right um yeah. it, did it work <laughs> um did it do did it do what they wanted it to do and my my hunch and maybe we'll be able to do this in the next survey is like looking at the next set of data is like probably not like I, I don't know my sense is that this would be a perpetuating process which again maybe is indication of some of the like reasons for why women and transgender people are doing it more often is because maybe it's not actually doing what they wanted to do um and so they kind of cycle through it more often uh, but yeah that's a great question for future research for sure also do you believe there is an issue with the bmi scale because I know the BMI <laughs> scale is not distinguished between fat, muscle, mm -hmm. your bones. So is that a effective right. way to measure? Is that an is that an effective instrument to use <laughs> analysis? Yes, uh, you've already hinted at it. No, it's a terrible instrument of analysis for analysis. <laughs> it's a terrible instrument for any purpose, really. Yeah, it's used poorly. It's not. Uh, it's not specific to types of you know body types. Number one, it's not really specific to the the way our body is composed. Um, you know, based on all the different weight we have, like organs and bones and muscles and all that stuff. And we do know that like men generally are going to have higher BMIs because they have more muscle mass. Men who are engaging in weight training or engaging in you know muscle building purpose built behaviors, they're going to have higher you know BMIs. So. Um, you know, calling a bodybuilder obese despite having like 2% body fat seems like a pretty problematic, it's like all the indication you need about how problematic it is. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't, I think it's a terrible instrument and does not help us really in any capacity. <laughs> I agree. Do you have anything else, James? Uh, no, I think, uh, all my questions have been answered and answered well. And I just like to thank you so much, Dr. Ganson, for joining us. We will have the link to the full study in the description for this episode. And be sure to check out uh, year two results coming soon. I guess. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me in this. Uh, yeah, it's been great. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.